is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Warwick Long with you for the Country Hour today. The new Agriculture Minister refuses to get involved in possible further dairy strike actions. Thousands of the pest varroa mite found on feral bees in New South Wales. We'll talk about the waste of sheepskins that's currently going on and hedgehog contamination in stock food. Yes, you heard me there. There is that warning out at the moment. We'll tell you more details on that coming up today. You can always send us a text 0467 842 722 here on the Country Hour. Give us a call 1300 977 Love getting your input here on the Country Hour. It's all coming up. Let's start today with rural news, though, and Eden Henninen. Good afternoon, Eden. G'day, Was. A cattle farmer from a Parabar near Kempsey in New South Wales says a major fire in her community has left cattle farmers with few options. Barbara Fraser says the fires have created additional devastation in an already dry season with low prices. She described it as a huge firewall which seemingly came out of nowhere and burnt its way through her property on Willy Willy Road last week. And it just took everything in front of it. Just went up over the back mountain, it just flew up everywhere. And it was not a thing, anyone. It wouldn't have mattered if there was a dozen people there. He said you could not have stopped it. It was impossible. As a cattle producer, I really don't know what, what half what we are going to do because we got no feed anywhere. You know, we really need um, we really we have to buy grain in, we're gonna to have to buy hay in and you can't get a kill of the meatworks at the moment for weeks ahead. So no matter which way you go, your hands are tied. It's just devastation and that's the bottom line. Federal Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, has been in far west New South Wales this week talking up the new plan for the Murray-Darling that she's trying to push through Parliament. The bill extends the time frame for completing the government's Murray-Darling Basin plan by three years and allowing buybacks to resume. It has passed the House of Representatives, but is yet to pass the Senate in federal parliament, where it will need the support of the Greens, the Jackie Lambie Network or independent David Pocock. Victoria has not signed up to the deal due to the state's refusal to support more water buybacks. Minister Plibersek is trying to cool concerns from Basin or communities that more buybacks will be bad. I'm not out there with a big checkbook you know, saying I'm going to buy whatever's offered and who cares about the consequences. That That is not my approach at all. Most people will now tell you they may have opposed the plan in the, in the past, but they know we have to do something to protect their livelihoods because they're part of a system to make sure that there's drinking water for the millions of people who get their drinking water from the river system. And they, and they also care about the environment. The idea that farmers don't care about the environment, that's not true. You know, many of them have been on their land for generations. They know it better, better than anyone. And they want to see uh, those 400-year-old trees and the, you know, bird breeding and all the rest of it. They want to see that protected. So I think working together, we can find a sensible and sensitive way through here. But we need to do it. Around $135 million will be invested in Australian research to develop higher-yielding and more nutritious crops. The funding will allow the Australian Plant Phenomics Facility to expand its network of crop research facilities to include every mainland state. Along with funding partners, the project includes $60 million in core funding from the Australian Government's National Collaborative Research Investment Strategy, 
Richard Dickman, the Interim Executive Director of the Australian Plant Phenomics Facility, whose headquarters are hosted by the University of Adelaide, explains what plant phenomics are. It's a rapidly developing field that uses highly sensitive cameras, sensors and robots to rapidly and digitally measure plant structure and function. So that overcomes a major bottleneck in current plant science research. And that's because while plant scientists now have many tools to create new plant types, the process of physically monitoring and measuring the plant traits that come out is slow, laborious and inefficient. So it's about collecting better data much faster to accelerate the research process. While Australia and the European Union debate the use of geographic indicators in the latest trade deal negotiations, the owner of one of the original examples of GIs is in Australia offering advice. To be called champagne, wine must meet very specific and hotly defended specifications in a particular region of France, something that's overseen by the Comité Champagne. And they believe Australia's wine regions can learn from them and about protecting the name of our unique wine-growing regions. For the first time, a delegation from Comité Champagne and the Wine Origins Alliance, of which it's a member, is in Australia touring the Barossa region. Charles Gomer, the director of the Comité Champagne, says his group is a powerhouse of the wine industry. So it's a very small region because it represents only 3% of the overall uh, planted region of France, but it's a a great community with uh, 21,000 wine growers and about 350 champagne houses. And so the interesting thing is the wine growers are producing 90% of the grapes, while the champagne houses are selling 75% of of the wines uh, worldwide. And so you understand that uh, each of the community needs the others. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons of our organization is to create uh, a good coordination among those two uh, families. And that's where all news for today was. Thank you very much for that, Eden Hennon. An amazing getting advice from the major group around geographical indicators at a time when producers are pleading with the government not to sign the EU trade deal uh, over the issue of geographical indicators, particularly around Prosecco and some cheese names as well. We'll have to keep watching that for you. You can send a text with what you think to the country out of 0467 842 722. You can also text me or Give me a call on our next issue. I didn't want to start today, actually, with the dairy strikes, but we are here again. Dairy processors and unions are meeting today to continue their negotiations over paying conditions for workers in the wake of strikes last week. Now, there were two dairy worker strikes last week, one with Saputo milk tanker drivers, which has been resolved, and the drivers are back at work. We spoke to that union involved, the TWU, last week. Uh, yesterday, sorry, on the Country Hour. You can go back and listen to that uh, wherever you get the Victorian Country Hour podcast or in the ABC Listen app. That has been resolved. They're back at work now. The second strike was a strike of over 1,000 dairy factory workers at 14 sites owned by four major milk processors. Their union, the United Workers Union, is meeting with those companies today and is still continuing with its threat of rolling strike action that will begin again as soon as Friday if companies don't get closer to the demands of the union of a 15% pay rise for workers over three years. Farmers have called for the government to get involved, the state government, that is, to get involved before it gets gets worse. And it is the first major issue, really, for the government's new agriculture minister, the fifth in five years, Ros Spence, who was appointed earlier this month on the 2nd of October. 
Now, we've been trying to get the Minister to join you on the country out these last few weeks and asked again yesterday, specifically on this issue, for an interview any day, any time this week to discuss if she has plans to do anything in the wake of the dairy strikes, if there is a role for government here or not, or even her thoughts on the situation as well. Her office replied and said that wasn't possible, but has provided a statement, and I'll read it to you now, and I quote, Industrial action is a matter for Victorian dairy producers, workers, and their representatives. We encourage the dairy industry and United Dairy Workers and United Workers Union to settle the negotiations as soon as possible to limit disruption. End quote. That's it. Two sentences. And you can help me out here. Does it sound to you that sentence, industrial action is a matter for Victorian dairy producers, workers, and their representatives? Like the minister is talking about farmers dealing with striking workers here or processors. I actually replied yesterday evening and again today to clarify if the minister understands that the strike action is not actually between dairy producers and unions, but dairy processors and unions. I was told I'd get clarification by email and so far have not received it. You can tell me what you think. 0467-842-722. That statement again and I quote, industrial action is a matter for Victorian dairy producers, workers and their representatives. We encourage the dairy industry and United Workers Union to settle the negotiations as soon as possible to limit disruption, end quote. Without the minister to join you on the country, our shadow agriculture minister, Emma Keeley from the Nationals, can. Emma Keeley, it's a short statement. Is it enough? No, I don't think it is, Warwick. Uh, we've got an issue where producers are, are really on their knees and they're, they're being squashed between a, an industrial uh, battle that's going on at the moment, an EBA negotiation. Uh, if there is anybody who is best placed to go in and try and sort through this and make sure there's minimal disruption to both our, you know, the dairy industry, the growers, the people who produce the milk, uh, but also to make sure we, we're not going to have any disruption in getting our milk and dairy products into supermarkets. And, of course, with cost of living being such a big issue, we don't want to see any action that could uh, be the, you know, could result in a more expensive grocery prices at the end of the day. So, absolutely, the Minister should be getting on the phone straight away and trying to work through, through this agreement and end the disruption for our local uh, dairy farmers. The minister's argument and her office's argument would be that this is not their place to get involved. It's a dispute between unions and a multinational company. Now, the statement almost makes it sound like the farmers are involved, but isn't is that fair enough for a government a position for a government to take? Look, I would say that, but we know that Labor is based upon a union movement. Uh, they get an enormous amount of donations uh, to the Labor Party to win elections. We know they've got existing relationships there. So arguably, if there was any opportunity for a Labor agriculture minister to step up, it would be now. Uh, we need to make sure we've got an ag minister who's not just uh, unwilling to pick up the phone to hold the unions to account when it's disrupting farmers, but willing to stand up for the industry. That's her job and that's what she should be putting first and foremost. If you were agriculture minister, is that what you would do? Get on the phone? 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important, Warwick, that you've got someone who's willing to stand up for the industry. And we don't want to end up with a situation where dairy farmers are throwing milk out or, or throwing them out the drain or onto the paddocks. It's not just something that's absolutely heartbreaking for anybody to do, but there's also risks around it, which I know is of some concerns to, to some in the sector, is, is how we actually manage and dispose of milk. So I think first and foremost, if I was the Minister for Agriculture, you'd be doing all you can to make sure that dairy farmers are able to continue to do what they do best, uh, to make sure that they're producing milk, they're able to get it to uh, the factories and to get it produced on, on supermarket shelves as soon as possible. Rod Spence is a new Agriculture Minister, only recently elevated to that portfolio. In that regard, do you cut some slack to a new minister here and do you have some advice to offer? I I think that as soon as you're appointed into any of those more senior roles, there is an expectation that you hit the ground running. I don't think that anyone expects miracles. Everyone's expect to, you know, has uh, some respect around that in terms of people finding their feet, but they also expect them to at least put an effort in to do the job. Uh, so whether that is getting on the phone and advocating to uh, unions or to uh, the uh, the the dairy processing industry to try and get a resolution to this agreement so, as soon as possible or whether it's communicating uh, through the media, talking to yourself, Warwick, or talking to the wider community and explaining what the vision is for agriculture in the state, looking at how we're actually taking great steps towards uh, Victoria continuing to be a leading uh, provider and grower across the nation and internationally as well. That's what we want to hear from our Ag Minister and it's really important that we get someone who's able to hit the job, hit the ground running on day one and not hide away for weeks on end. Emma Keeley, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Warwick. Shadow Agriculture Minister Emma Keeley uh, from the Nationals joining you on the program there. Just checked my email again to see if there is a clarification. There isn't. That statement again from the Victorian Agriculture Minister, Ros Spence, says industrial action is a matter for Victorian dairy producers, workers and their representatives. We encourage the dairy industry and United Workers Union to settle the negotiations as soon as possible to limit disruption. End quote. That's it. Uh, This one says that response from the minister is very typical of a Labor government minister. They have no interest in... Anything going on outside of Melbourne, says Chris. Uh, does the government have a commitment to agriculture? Five agriculture ministers in five years, says it all, really, says another one. Uh, she didn't understand the situation or the question either, says a text here. Uh, some more commentary coming in. This one, cutting the minister some slack, says people make mistakes, and I'm sure the comms person's feeling pretty bad right now. The outrage should equal be equal to the problem, and those words don't cause any real problems, says Chris. Craig says the words lump dairy farmers in as part of the problem. Clarification or retraction would be ideal. Then that would be admitting they have no idea, so I won't hold my breath. And Peter says it's outside of Melbourne, so I doubt anyone in government has any idea about it, says Peter. You can keep your comments coming, 0467 842 722. If you want to send a text or you can give us a call, 1300 977 222. As I said, we didn't want to start with the dairy strikes today, but here we are. Let's talk about something different right now, and that's continuing our coverage of Varroa mite, the pest that wasn't found in Australia till just over a year ago, and it's continuing to spread through New South Wales. In fact, authorities in New South Wales have detected an infestation of 9,000 varroa mites 
on a single feral bee swarm on the Central Coast. The discovery was part of its ongoing surveillance of feral bees to monitor the spread of the deadly bee parasite across the state. The Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales has 244 swarm traps located in the Hunter and Central Coast and is looking to deploy more, including around the Kempsey Management Zone, where there has been a particularly bad outbreak of varroa mite. The DPI's Deputy Incident Controller, Dr Shannon Mulholland, told Kim and the testing of feral bees was progressing well. It's something that we've been doing for a while under the response because it's really important for us to understand uh, mite presence and also mite load in managed hives but also in wild honeybees. Uh, There's been a few opportunities where we've been able to sample colonies directly from where they're living um, for the ones that are accessible. They're often quite difficult to access so that's been um, one option that we've explored. We've also been able to catch uh, a fair few swarms and we've also been able to deploy swarm catch boxes to attract swarms as they're moving through the environment and that makes it a lot easier for us to sample them from there. And so how many swarms have you actually caught? And in those swarms, what sort of infestations of varroa mite are you finding? Yeah, we've been able to catch swarms and sample colonies directly uh, for the wild honeybee population. And we have had a few detections of varroa in, in some of those colonies. They're predominantly within the Hunter and Central Coast where we have a large number of infested premises and we know that the mite loads are quite high on that coastal fringe. Um, The mite load does vary depending on um, the colony that we've sampled on the day. Uh, In some instances, there's only been a handful of mites. Um, In a few, there's been quite a few hundred mites, so that's quite a high mite load. And then there's been a few that have had a a couple of thousand mites. I think the highest one we've had was around 9,000 mites, um, which is a, a pretty substantial mite load. Uh, and that certainly might be a factor as to why that colony was swarming in the first place. And what area was that found in Newcastle or the Central Coast? That one was found on the Central Coast. But we, yeah, we have found um, positive detections in wild bees in, in the Hunter and on the Central Coast. So 9,000 mites, how, how many bees would have been in that swarm? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure if they counted the full number of bees. I think they were a little bit preoccupied with counting the mites. Um, but it would have just been a, an average swarm population of bees. Uh, so yeah, a few thousand bees in that swarm. And so what happened to that swarm? Um, So those swarms, uh, as they're found positive, they are euthanized, uh, and that's just a a mite control option that we can apply in the field. Um, But the the sampling process uh, was using the alcohol wash technique, which is a destructive sampling process anyway. Okay, so you're using swarm traps and monitoring stations for the testing and catching? Uh, Well, the monitoring stations were a key feature of the Wild Honeybee Baiting Program, but as that program has now uh, ceased with our transition to management, those stations are in the process of being demobilised. So what we will use moving forward are the swarm catch boxes uh, and also just continue to survey colonies that are in the area. So if we have public reports of wild bees and we can access them from the ground, um, we will continue to sample as many of them as we can. Okay, so the 1,200 or so monitoring stations aren't operating more or are winding back? Yeah, they're winding down at the moment. They're, they're in the process of being packed up as part of that wind down of the, the baiting program. The, the wild honeybee team that we have within the response is still going to be actively working with the response moving forward. Um, there's some important research components that they're finishing off, but they're also going to be really important in monitoring our wild bee population uh, over that transition phase. Um, It's really important data for us to consider in terms of understanding the level of infestation and also mite presence. Uh, And it'll be an interesting thing to track to see um, what that mite population does to those wild bee populations. Uh, We'll we'll do the introductory component of that over the next 12 months, but I'm hoping that that will be an ongoing feature for industry to keep surveying as part of that transition and management of the role moving forward.
And so is the, the DPI concerned at all that um, the feral bees will be spreading varroa mite quicker now? Uh, I don't know if we could say that they're spreading it quicker, but they are certainly a vector. So um, they're, they're certainly capable of being infested by varroa and they will host varroa in the environment. So if we have an area that has a large mite presence in wild bees, then managed hives in that area are certainly going to be at risk of further infestation or reinfestation, even if they are treating it within their hives. Uh, and it's certainly something that I'm concerned about with any beekeepers who might be electing to catch swarms that are in those management zones, so particularly around Kempsey, the Hunter and the Central Coast. Uh, the risk of having mites in those wild bee populations is high in those areas. We know that we have a high number of infested premises in those locations. So it, it's quite a risky move to be catching swarms in those areas where there could be high mite levels present. There you go. Fascinating that 9,000 varroa mites were found on a single feral bee swarm and one of the great impacts of varroa spread in other parts of the world has been on feral honeybees uh, or wild honeybees, depending on how you view it, I suppose. But uh, fascinating to, to hear that's already being found in areas of New South Wales where this outbreak is continuing. Uh, that was the New South Wales DPI's Deputy Incident Controller for the Varroa Mite Response, Dr Shannon Mulholland, speaking there to Kim Honan. You're listening to The Country. A couple more of your texts just before we uh, move on to talk about a very prickly uh, contamination of horse feed. Uh, but on the Agriculture Minister saying she didn't want to get involved, or can't get involved, in the issue of dairy strikes and the statement I read out earlier, Paul in South Gippsland says, Hi, was the agriculture portfolio seems to be the training ground for new ministers with aspirations. And the quoted statement you just read out highlights the ambitious misunderstanding of who is responsible. It also highlights how the ag minister needs to engage with the industries she is responsible for. Seems to be a clear lack of engagement that department uh, and a clear lack of understanding of which organisations are responsible for the workers' strikes in processor plants and transport, says Paul in South Gippsland. And Tom's at Winslow, he says, surely our elected representatives should be responsible for assisting the two parties involved in this dispute to come to some form of agreement. The Minister for Agriculture, uh, for the Minister of Agriculture, to not want to get involved in this issue is almost unbelievable. That's from Tom at Winslow. You can keep those statements coming, uh, those statements, those texts coming, 0467 842 Have you ever found a hedgehog in your hay? A popular imported horse feed product has been recalled due to being contaminated. It's not completely uncommon to find foreign objects in baled hay, but this particular prickly pest from New Zealand was very unexpected, as Brandon Long reports. Feeding hay to livestock can be a mundane job until one cold August morning for this Western Australian horse owner. When I was feeding Felix that morning, um, he has like a strict diet. Um, so one of the things he gets was the fibre fresh. Um, I always break it up because it's like a hard lump. And I got a nice spiked hand that morning. I thought it was actually a Scotch thistle to start with. While a thistle weed would have been a painful inconvenience... Nicola Forsberg says it took her a lot of explaining to convince her local feed supplier it was, in fact, a dead hedgehog, a cute but very much introduced pest to New Zealand. I um, let the local stock feeds know that I bought it from. Um, they asked me to bring it back. I didn't have time at the time to bring it back, so it took a couple of, probably about two weeks. Eventually got back to them. 
And then someone from um, a Department of Agriculture or something rang me up about it. The stock feed did have a go at me to start off with, trying to say that I didn't leave the remains in the bag, which I did. I told them to dive their hand in and get a surprise like I did, and they'd find it. Has this happened before? No, so that's the first time for Fibre Fresh, but, I mean, you always find something in the bags. Like Quite often you find um, mice and stuff in chaff bags or half a mouse. Yeah, so obviously when farmers are, are harvesting crops, uh, the snakes and, and mice get um, bailed up and, and that's uh, hard to, to prevent. So. Yeah, well, we've found a snake in a bale before as well, but it's just, it happens. So are you concerned about your find? Well, I didn't know that it was actually bailed in a different country. Um, so obviously that's a um, concern, but... Um, I, would, I just wanted people to know, right? you know, because some people wouldn't break it up. They'd just chuck it in the feed, and it's quite a lump. So, you know, it would be a surprise for the animal. But what would be even more devastating is what I've seen on the post is now um, it may, might not be getting imported into Australia. If we don't have it here in Australia, that would be um, quite sad, really, because it's a good product. All imports of fibre-fresh products have been suspended by the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, which has directed the importer in this instance, Highgain, to remove the products from sale and the supply chain immediately. Customers are being told to stop using the product, to seal open bags and contact their retailer. In a post on their Facebook page, Fibre Fresh Australia says they are collaborating closely to resolve this issue effectively. It's raised concerns about the potential for contamination, but also future supply of valuable stock feed, when many parts of Australia are quickly drying out. That is Brandon Long with that report. I can say I've found a few strange things in hay bales over the years. Never found a hedgehog. That has got to be the strangest thing that's ever been found in hay bales or in feed. If you can beat that, you know what to do. You can send me a text about it, 0467842722. Let's find out what's making regional news headlines right now. Lexi Junowit can do that for us today. Good afternoon, Lexi. A very good afternoon to you, Warwick. The Country Fire Authority is urging Victorians to take extreme care when clearing around their properties after 115 burn-offs became out-of-control fires across the state last month. The CFA says the recent fires in East Gippsland are a timely reminder for residents to ensure they are aware of burn-off safety measures and are prepared before ignition. Weather conditions are expected to become warmer and drier over the coming weeks with challenging gusts wins. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek says Victoria's opposition to water buybacks by the Commonwealth is illogical. A rewrite of the Murray-Darling Basin plan called Restoring Our Rivers is currently before the Senate, with Victoria the only basin state not signed up to the proposed New Deal. Minister Plibersek says Victorian farmers will still be able to sell their water voluntarily to the Commonwealth and therefore the government not signing on to the deal only prevents them from accessing more time and money for water infrastructure projects. Victoria needs an extra 135 donations of type O blood every day during the next fortnight as supplies reach the lowest point in a year, according to the Red Cross. The organisation says O negative blood, the universal blood type, makes up to 16% of hospital requests, but only 7% of the population has it. 
and the state's environmental watchdog is inspecting dairy farms across the southwest region to ensure effective water pollution controls are in place. The EPA says its officers are looking for compliance with effluent pond management and waste disposals at businesses. In conjunction with the inspections, community information sessions are being held in Peterborough and Camperdown today. And for more news and stories, you can head to your local ABC station online. Thanks very much for that. Lexi Junowick there with regional news headlines. I can see a lot of your texts coming in. We'll get to some of those in a moment. We'll head to the Bureau in a moment as well. You can keep them coming though. Send us a text and we'll we'll read some of those in just a second. ABC Listen. Tape 5 with San Rowe is back for a new season. And I'll be asking some extraordinary people about the five songs that shaped them. So what five songs have shaped Noel Gallagher? Straight away, I'm there. Spoiler alert, he has some stories. Go to the ABC Listen app to hear the full interviews from the episodes on screen. Season two of Take Five with me, Zan Rowe. Find the podcast now on the ABC Listen app. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. I can press the right button eventually. A few of your text messages coming in at the moment. Amazing. All about the Agriculture Minister, not a mention of the company making profits and not negotiating with workers in good faith, says Gavin in sale. Gavin, we've been covering this for weeks. You're more than welcome to listen to the podcast. Go back over. Once again, say we've had union representatives and factory workers, not just union representatives on the program a lot over the last week. In fact, if we're talking sheriff time, probably more than anybody else. And Simon says, more Labor bashing on the country hour. Simon, I don't. I think I made it clear at the start of the program, but we've been inviting the Agriculture Minister on for weeks. We invited the Agriculture Minister on again yesterday. I asked for clarification of that statement last night. Asked for clarification of that statement again today uh, and have not been sent it. As yet. So I don't know what more you want me to do. And of course, if the Agriculture Minister isn't going to comment, except for only providing two words of a statement, and the opposition will come on, we will speak to the opposition. Uh, but if the Agriculture Minister came on, you wouldn't have heard Emma Keeley on the program today. So maybe if you. Uh, well, you sound very Labor inclined. If you would like to encourage your Labor representative to come onto the program, more than willing to dedicate time on this program to discussing these issues with the ministers of the government in Victoria. 0467 842 If you want to send us a text, happy to take your texts. Right now, Stephanie Miles, though, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, can take you through the weather for today. And it's, well, feeling cool once again, Stephanie. Yeah, hi Warwick. And it was a bit of a windy and wild morning for most of the state. That was due to the cold front that we've got currently crossing us and the northerly winds ahead of it. Uh, look, the wind gusts that we've had so far, we had about 115 kilometres per hour at Mount William just before 7am and those northerly winds really just picking up around the uh, central district at the moment. We've got about 94 kilometres per hour in Mount Gellibrand and then up to about uh, 80 or 90 kilometres at places like Aries Inlet and Melbourne Airport. So yeah, a little bit windy. Um, but like I said, it's due to our cold front that's crossing the state. It's kind of, uh, at the moment, the wind change with it is around like Mildura and perhaps down to the Otways or so. So 
those northerly winds ahead of it are just mainly around our central and northeastern ranges. And we do have a severe weather warning out at the moment for damaging wind gusts above 90 kilometres per hour. Uh, but those winds will start to ease throughout the afternoon as that cold front continues to move eastward throughout the afternoon and this evening. Now, down the southwest of our coast, it's a little bit cloudier down there, and you can see... Uh, we actually have our temperatures dropping, like you said, feeling a bit colder. That Warrnambool is down to about 16 degrees, and in contrast, that's, you know, about 24 in the Melbourne metro area and even out to the eastern areas around 24, 25 degrees. So, yeah, a bit of a cool change coming in behind the cold front today. Uh, and, look, those conditions are really going to continue tomorrow as well on Wednesday where we're really just going to have showers on and south of the ranges and that really cold air mass bringing temperatures anywhere around 15 to 16 degrees around the state, possibly some small hail as well. So, yeah, look, get some warm jumpers that for tomorrow. On Thursdays, those, Thursday, sorry, those conditions are going to start to ease a little bit. Still will be quite partly cloudy and also a little bit cold in around 17 to 19 degrees. But yeah, look, after Thursday afternoon, everything will start to really ease and move eastwards. By Friday, we'll have more of sunny conditions around 20 degrees. So it's really just this afternoon and tomorrow we've got to get through before we get some uh, more sunnier and warmer conditions on, on Friday and into the weekend work. And warnings-wise, over the next 24 hours or so, anything in particular we need to keep an eye out for? Yeah, definitely. We've got that severe weather warning out for the damaging winds uh, for the central and northeastern ranges, so have a look at that one if you're in those areas. Also, warning to sheep grazers in that uh, really cold weather that's coming, so for most districts except for the Wimmera for that one, and then anyone out in the coastal waters today, just be careful. There is a lot of marine wind warnings out. We have some gales and some strong winds out there too, so yeah, keep up to date with those ones, but otherwise um, try to stay warm this afternoon as the temperatures start to drop. Yeah, plenty of weather on the forecast, but not a lot of rain, is there, Stephanie? No, you're right, not a lot of rain. Everything that's coming today is actually quite dry. It's really uh, into tomorrow and Thursday we're going to get anywhere between about 2 to 8 um, millimetres in that rainfall. The most of it will really just start to be on the southwest coast and those Bass Coast and exposed western uh, coastal areas. But you're right, there's not all that much in it, less than 10 mils or so. Brilliant. Thanks very much for the update. Thanks so much, Warwick. Enjoy your afternoon. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast for today <laughs> and look we've been serious on the text line but I, we did hit just hear about hedgehog contamination in hay which is a serious biosecurity issue and you know we take that seriously on the country but i did ask you if you found anything pretty wild in a bale of hay before and jules well jules is almost winning on the text line here was i was carting small bales of grass hay in Kamaruka. Uh, Shane was offload, was loading off the truck up the elevator to a uh, haystack six metres high. As the bale flipped over onto the stack, I went to grab the sp- strings and holy dooly, a snake still alive but trapped under the strings was there. I nearly walked on air straight off the stack. <laughs> we did ask for danger money after that. Jules, that's incredible. A live snake. In a small hay bale. Oh, it's got the uh, tingles down the back of my spine just thinking about going to grab it. Thank you very much for sending that through. That's a great story. If you've ever found something weird and wonderful in a hay bale, we'd love to hear from you today. We've been hearing about hedgehog contamination from New Zealand feed produce for horse producers today earlier on in the program. This is the Country Hour. Let's talk about, well, a, pro- pro- a product that was, well, once quite valued, probably going to waste a little bit now, sheepskin. Uh, Car seat covers, floor rugs, or even jackets were once the height of luxury, but some processors now charging farmers a fee to send their skins to landfill. And it has industry representatives concerned about a premium product that's going to waste. Eliza Balage has the story. 
Sheep producer Jason Gordon from Caniva in Western Victoria received more than $30 a piece for his skins a decade ago. These days, he's only receiving a couple of dollars, all being charged a disposal fee. This year we've seen fee disposal for skins, as it's obvious that the works can't get their skins to be bought by anyone. So we've had prices range from the top price for merino skins off a 28-kilo carcass of $3 to two weeks beforehand, the same draft of lambs averaging the same weight for a fee disposal of $3 and some skins that were a bit longer a fortnight before that made 45 cents. So not only is it frustrating that we're not getting any money for them, it's very, very frustrating that we don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a negative $3 or a positive $3? Those same sort of skins so I've got up to $30 for. I got $32.50 for some skins about a decade ago. And if you look at the price of lamb then, I'd say that we're talking about 10% of the value of our sheep was taken up in a skin. So now it's a negative impact. And it's just one of those little things that creeps into your bottom line, taking it away from, from how much you make. Rather than let his skins go to waste, Mr Gordon has been retrieving his skins from processors to have them tanned and turned into blankets. Ourselves, and, and I know a few other producers, have done the same thing, but we've got some lamb skins made and uh, like tanned in Australia. I actually just uh, delivered some the other day to a, a sick friend and that, that's uh, bedridden at the moment. So those natural lamb skins, they're so soft. And when they're processed in Australia with our high environmental standards, not processed in China or somewhere where they can use chemicals that our grandfathers weren't allowed to use, but processed here in an environmentally friendly way, they are the most beautiful skins and leather you are ever likely to touch or feel. Western Victoria sheep producer Jason Gordon. Luke Kivligan is the Vice President of the Australian Hide, Skin and Leather Exporters Association. He says his company has been saving thousands of skins a week from landfill. Well, we, we are concerned. We're trying to or my company especially, is we're trying to take as many skins as we can. Yes, they're, they're coming in at a negative, but um, you know, rather than putting them in a hole, my company's got an agreement with a company in China who are, are taking them. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, they're taking them at nothing, but they're not going into a hole and a landfill. They're going to China and you know, having a use over there. So um, if we can get them to China or to somewhere, you know, rather than putting in the landfill, that would be the ideal position but you know some of them are you know if they've been recently shorn and there's nothing on them and things like that there is absolutely no value in them. Mr Kivligan says rising operating costs for tanneries and changing consumer trends has contributed to the downturn. 20-30 years ago it was a fashionable item you know to have a sheepskin jacket especially in colder climates and you know colder countries you know uh, Russia and different places it was essential but Unfortunately, with fashion changing and um, you know synthetics coming on the market, people thinking synthetics are wonderful, but uh, not realising how much energy and how much different things go into producing that. We've got a beautiful natural product that isn't being fully utilised, unfortunately. Yeah, and with I suppose sheepskin car seat covers and things like that, you know I suppose you're putting that over sort of uh, almost vinyl seats and things and. 
I think the automotive trade now is, you know, you can have leather seats and different things like that. So, you know, a lot of our uses that we had have sort of um, slipped away a little bit. Vice President of Australian Hide, Skin and Leather Exporters Association, Luke Kivligan. In August, Thomas Foods International joined other meat processors in charging livestock producers a dumping fee for their sheep and lamb skins. Paul Leonard is the National Livestock Manager of the South Australian-based company. He says the disposal fee is a temporary measure. Unfortunately, skins have followed a similar pattern, if you like, to protein, albeit they're a completely different article. But with skins, I mean... You know, the world has changed. There's more synthetic options available these days that people aren't as reliant on skins and probably as or hides as what globally is what they used to be. Mr Leonard says the value of some skins has remained steady. It's really only has affected, you know, a small percentage of the skin, so I think that needs to be made clear. It would only affect currently probably 10 to 15% of the skins that we are processing and those being really just the really freshly shorn sheep or up to about five or six weeks off shears. And outside that, really only those really broad type crossbred lamb skins. So it doesn't affect a, a typical white Suffolk or a, that type skin. But if you get into those very, very broad composite type lambs, it has affected them. Paul Leonard, National Livestock Manager of Thomas Foods International. Endeavour wool market analyst Josh Lamb says the depressed wool market and oversupply of livestock has worsened the issue. I think it's a similar similar problem to, to, to wool in one way where the demand's not there but the, the quantity of sheepskins available has far outstripped any demand. You know, the wool side of it, we're not so much a supply issue, it's more a demand issue, but in sheepskins, um, from what we were told in China recently, there's just too many of them. So a lot of sheepskins go to China and they actually get shorn. They have big factories there that they shear the wool off them, but of course the demand's not there for the wool at the moment either, and that's obviously flowing back to the, the values that sheepskin traders can, can trade out of here for. Mr Lamb says while it's not a short-term solution, the sheepskin market may benefit in the future from growing environmental concerns in the fashion and textiles industry. I think it will medium to long term, but the, the, the issue at the moment is you know, global economy in general. We've got to sort that out first. But, but what you said is definitely, definitely on our side, medium to long term, where we, you know, we grow a product that we know is you know, sustainable. I don't I hate to use that word. It gets overused these days. But you know, it's a natural product and it, it is grown in a sustainable way. And that's definitely on our side. And, and China increasingly is talking more and more about carbon footprints and, and tracing carbon through the wool supply chain as well. So, you know, Europe's been doing that for a long time, but China's starting to do it as well. And I think wool, you know, ticks all those boxes going forward as a, as a sustainable product. That is Endeavour Wool Market Analyst Josh Lamb ending that story from Eliza Balage and Angus Verley. You can actually read much more about that online at abc.net.au slash rural. Uh, let's continue our journey getting to paddocks here on the country. Just over the border, rice growers in the Riverina are wrapping up sowing just in time to make a start on winter crop harvest. Bunaloo farmer uh, Anthony uh, Vag, Vag sorry, is growing 300 hectares of rice this season. He spoke with Angus Verley yesterday, just as he was finishing his last paddock. Yeah, it's going well. We've had a little bit of rain that interrupted it, um, but I'm just uh, finishing the last block now, and most people are sort of towards the end, and so it's been a, been a pretty seamless run, which has been great. And the the first stuff that you put in, how's it looking? Yeah, good. We've sort of um, 
all put it in only within the last few weeks. So there's um there's a small shoot on it, so it, it's it's coming, but um certainly not green paddocks anywhere just yet. And is it all uh, drill sown at your place? No, we've we've done a bit of a split. We've drilled so some paddocks that have probably got some potential weed issues and duck problems and things like that. And then we've aerial sown a, a volume to you can you can really get some aerial sown rice in quick. So we've we've done a bit of that as well. What sort of area, I suppose, both both on your farm and in the broader district, what sort of area being sown to rice this season? Yeah, I'm not really sure on on the broader area. I think sort of they'd be looking for sort of that 600 plus thousand ton, but not really too sure. But um, we're sort of just doing a, a reasonable program for a high available water year. So um, we're sort of, you know, a bit over 300 hectares of rice and then we've got some corn and other summer crops as well. So um, not way over the top, but um, just a good solid number to keep us busy. And the water price at the moment in your district, Anthony, where's it at? Uh, I haven't looked for a little bit, but it's it'll be floating around 100, a little bit over. Uh, the price hasn't hasn't increased like it has up in sort of the Murrumbidgee and and Collie and and the like. So, um, but we have gone from a you know it's opened at about forty dollars or something, and it and it went up to as high as sort of 140, 150. So it's been moving around a bit, trying to find its place. But you know we're on 110 percent, so there's there's plenty of water out there. And if you are buying it, the, the figures at that hundred to sort of hundred and fifty dollars a meg range, that the numbers still stack up for you. Yeah, they still stack up at that. Yeah, yeah. And the rice price, Anthony, a bit different to your uh, winter crops that you don't that you don't really have an indication of what price you'll receive. But did it, what what are you expecting? Yeah, no. So we're not. It's just all going in a pool um, system this year. So there are some contracts that they um, that Sunrise will put out. Um, in some years, but but not this year. So it's a complete unknown, I guess. But um, based on some forecasts and world markets and and northern hemisphere, so the US rice and things like that, there's a lot of factors to put into play. Plus, you know, being sold over a, an eighteen month to you um, cycle. So we really don't know. But I guess we're looking at you know numbers close to previous years and and sort of trying to get a bit of bit of a round figure on that. Weather-wise, Anthony, the, we've had probably a string of cooler summers with the cooler finishes, maybe not ideal for rice, but we, we're sort of expecting a, a hotter summer this time around. Is is that better for the rice side of things? Yeah, certainly where we are down in the southern growing region of, of rice production, yeah, the hotter the better. Um, we, we've probably been stung a couple of times in the last few years with, with cooler summers and haven't, haven't reached our full potential of yield, but, you know, with hot dry summers it's it's perfect conditions for growing rice really and your winter crop harvest probably not not far away and and you got that rain back in uh early october that went through sort of central victoria as well yeah we were really lucky we um we picked up sort of that 55 to 60 mils and um the crops were looking really good but but it's just starting to hit the wall so they they desperately needed it and and we were really lucky because we, we got it even though we didn't really have that sort of volume forecast so no we just yeah pinch ourselves we sometimes you get lucky and, and, and we've been very fortunate we've got lucky and so yeah the crops are um they're looking good the canola's windrowed um on the ground so the clock's ticking to harvest okay so like all of the both uh summer and winter crop growers you you'll basically wrap up sowing rice and then go straight into uh, winter crop harvest yep pretty much so we're sort of um, we're madly trying to finish the summer program, the selling program, so that we can then uh, 
regroup and, and hit the uh, hit the winter harvest. So, um, but it's a good problem to have. It's good to be busy and plenty of water to, to make us make us busy. And on the the irrigation water side of things, Anthony, good at the moment, but obviously uh, buybacks back on the table under the, the basin plan. Is that something that's got a lot of people concerned about what that might mean for future water availability and pricing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's really worrying. Really, really worrying in this in this part of the world because realistically, the large volume of, of water, if they do go for the full four hundred and fifty, is is going to come from this southern New South Wales and northern Victorian basin, and um, it's uh, it's pretty scary to think what that might look like in in ten fifteen years time because um, you know the, the the people who hold the water might be able to sell it and move to the coast and that, but the communities that are left and the um, the factory workers and and everyone else and the, the coffee shop owners and all that it's um it's pretty scary when you remove that sort of water which removes a heap of money to the district and a heap of employment and um yeah it's a it's a very scary prospect going forward okay so that's a i suppose a a long term looming black cloud but but at least in the short term with this season uh in terms of weather grain pricing etc things are uh, sitting sitting pretty well Yep. No, absolutely. Like this this season, we've been very lucky. Um, winter crops great. Plenty of water available um, for the summer programs, and and even into next year, we can carry over and park and do what we need to do to, you know, secure a, an amount of water that'll that'll see a reasonable year next year. So short term, everything's looking really good, which is fantastic because we've we've had quite a good run of seasons, and no doubt there'll be tough seasons on the way, but um. Well, well, we've got the opportunity. We need a need a bank a bit, and good rainfall. But unlike last year, not too much. I think you, you said that exactly this time last year, you were actually sandbagging to keep out flood water. Yeah, no, we um we were lucky on the farm here. We didn't have too much inundation. We just had low lying areas knocked out. But yeah, certainly you know, Mime is the local town, and so yeah, we do a bit of work during the day and sandbag all afternoon and that and um yeah it's it's the opposite contrast this year it's um crazy how the systems are change year to year that's Bunaloo rice grower anthony vag speaking there with angus verley about this season's uh well rice sowing and heading into grain harvest as well you're listening to the country hour let's check in on the markets <laughs> Uh, we'll start with the cattle markets today. A shepherd and cattle market is coming to you from Nicole Varley. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers were back as only 650 exports and 200 trade were offered at Shepparton. The quality was fair to good in the export run with the grown steers and bullocks having weight and condition. The better end of the beef and dairy cows sold at dearer rates of 9 to 15 cents. Bullocks were firm to a few cents dearer on the 500 to 600 kilo C4 grades. The trade cattle were a mixed bag as numbers were the lowest we've seen for some time. Lighter weighted cattle under 260 kilo struggled to find homes. The best of the veal has made up to 245 cents for the heavier end. Yearling steers range from 170 to 210, with the feeders topping at 253. The yearling heifer portion 130 to 220. Heavy Frisian steers in the heavy range made from 161 to 190 cents. The 400 to 500 kilo steers 180 to 210. 5 to 600 kilo steers C3, C4 grades up to 243 cents. The 600 kilo plus bullocks reached 238. Cows were the highlight of the day with a price jump of that 15 cent up to that 15 cent mark. 
mark and made from 160 to $2 to average around 195 This is Nicole Valley from Shepparton. Let's go to Wodonga Cattle now. Leanne Dax has those details for you. Good afternoon. Just over 1,000 cattle were offered at Wodonga, combined in the total 403 cows. Quality was fair to very good and all the usual buyers were at the rail and all were keen to secure well-finished trade and export stock. The market found some legs this week with prices for trade steers and heifers 20 to 30 cents dearer. However, veal continued to struggle, selling at 178 to 265. Trade steers 205 to 240, trade heifers 190 to 270, over fat heifers 155 to 178, feeder steers 198 to 214, up 20. Heavy grown steers jumped 20 cents, 205 to 244. Bullocks gained 15, 226 to 246. Heavy heifers with shape were up 20 cents and more in places, $2 to 246. Heavy cows surged 20 cents, 187 to 206. And the middle run, 154 to 171. And the best bull topped at 210. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Leanne. Uh, if we spoke earlier on this program about sheep skins and their value or lack thereof and what the, is happening to that market there. In there, we heard Josh Lamb, Plugger, on the text line says, Josh Lamb talking about lambs. Ha! Cheers, says Plugger. Well, Plugger, if you're a fan of nominative determinisms, I've got a treat for you. Let's go to the Ballarat Sheep and Lamb Market Report now with Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers almost doubled to 23,000 drawn for. Quality was very good over the heavy categories with more weight offered this week. While the lighter weights had a wide range of plain to very good, most of the usual buying group attended and operated in a market with mixed results. Heavy export and heavy trade lamb sold to 10 dearer, while the medium trades 2 to 10 cheaper. Lighter weight sold to 15 softer, but there were sales to 20 cheaper in places. There was more interest from store buyers, with new season lambs back to the paddock sold 5 to $99 a head, for the lighter weights and 80 to 126 for lambs over 18 kilos. Lambs to the trade, 18 to 22 sold 84 to 123 dollars. 22 to 26 kilo lambs sold 110 to 153. A limited number of lambs over 26 kilos sold 150 to 178 dollars. The heavy lambs averaged between 535 and 570 cents a kilo carcass weight. A limited offering of old lambs sold 5 to 20 dollars a head dearer for the heavy well presented types and the secondary types sold 10 to 20 cheaper. Heavy old lambs over 24 kilos sold $126 to $179 a head. There are sheep still to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Shiona. Just before we go on the country, as this program ends, if you're near a television, uh, Fiona Simpson, the outgoing president of the National Farmers Federation, is giving her, her final address and taking questions from members of the press gallery there right now. That's on ABC TV. You can catch up with that on iView or will. Obviously, if anything is said, that is an important story for us to cover on the country. I will bring it to you on Rural Reports tomorrow morning and on this very program tomorrow afternoon to check our text line just before we go uh, on the issue of sheepskins being worthless. Chris says, Warwick, if farmers are paying for skin disposal, they should pick them up, spread them out on degraded areas of land and sprinkle grass seeds through them. They rot down very quickly and the end result is a large area of repaired land. Chris, thanks for sending that through. Uh, this one says, is this the same problem too with cattle hides? I know that is very hard to find proper leather these days. Most as synthetic and do not last very well. Well, yeah, we've talked about falls in prices of hides as well and skins seem to be doing it particularly uh, bad or particularly poorly at the moment. We'll have to keep following that for you. Thanks for all of your texts involvement in the program today. 
We'll be back again to go through it all again tomorrow. Catch you then. It's one o'clock now.